The views expressed in the show are not necessarily the views of the University of Missouri-St. Louis or the U. This is Student Activist Hub Radio, a conversation on local and national political issues and events. You can call us at 314-516-8438. That's 516-THE-U. And now your hosts, Adam and Kevin. Hello, uh, this is Student Activist Hub Radio, and I'm your host, as our executive producer says in the opening, uh, Kevin, and I'm with my co-host, uh, Adam. Hello. Uh, so, and we have a great show uh, this weekend. Uh, I guess we want to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, some of the national events going on in Wisconsin uh, that have shown up, um, and also some events related to Missouri with the U.S. Census Bureau numbers. But First, uh, Adam uh, has got a great uh, story posted on stlactivisthub.blogspot.com about uh, the KMOV sort of investigative piece about the stimulus package. Yeah. Um, so there's a so it's an interesting UMSL tie-in. It's basically yeah. sort of a, a, an attack piece on UMSL, um, from what I can tell. But um, I don't know. You know, I have. I have some people I, I've talked to who who claim uh, that KMOV has like moved very far to the right and sort of always pitches this right wing ideolo- uh, ideology. And then there's other people who think that um, KMOV um, basically uh, they're not right wing necessarily. They're just really bad at <laughs> reporting. But either way, I think some of these stories are a really good example of like what's wrong with uh, what's wrong with. Uh, uh, our, our modern uh, TV news media, which hopefully not many people even watch anymore, with some exceptions. But um, anyway, so UMSL, uh, I'm sorry, UMSL, KMOV published this story, um, and I, I can't remember exactly what the headline was, but I think it was something like, you know, $450,000 for one job studying a beetle or something, yeah. you know? So basically, uh, KMOV, they did this study and they talked about how stimulus money was spent. And, um, they kind of pestered Claire McCaskill, Senator Claire McCaskill, about it, um, and they focused most of their um, sort of ire. Well, they talked a little bit about Washington University, but they focused most of their ire on um, this four hundred fifty thousand dollars that had gone to UMSL, um, to the biology department, to study um, these wood boring beetles in Brazil. And so, of course, uh, the story was sort of like trying to make it sound all scandalous and, you know, and it kind of implies that like, you know, they get a free trip to Brazil and all the stimulus money is basically being wasted on this stupid thing, a beetle. Like, why would anyone care about this? Um, but the problem with it was that they, they really left out a lot of the details. They um, implied in their story that, uh, that the money was actually only spent on the equivalent of uh, quote, one full-time job. Um, but I, uh, I did a little digging on the website, and I also emailed um, the the professor who was sort of the the, um, the lead investigator of this project, and that was completely incorrect. The money actually went to fund um, one uh, graduate student in uh, in the United States, one full time graduate student in Brazil, um, one uh, part of a, the salary for a postdoctoral student, and part of the professor's study, as well as you know travel expenses and other things. So. So it actually went, it wasn't $450,000 for one, you know, one job. It was um, spread out quite a bit. 
Um, and also it had a lot of practical significance just because um, there are problems in the Missouri forestry industry with certain parasites. And so they're kind of investigating, um, you know, how, uh, you know, these similar problems and it might, you know, have some relevance to um, to the local sort of Missouri issue. So and, and just one of the other and the, of course, the forestry industry in the state of Missouri is four point four billion dollars, mm-hmm. huge industry. Yeah. Uh, and. That was not included in the story. And then the other detail uh, that, um, you know, or the other sort of tone of the story that I thought was interesting was sort of the gotcha aspect and the fact that there were literally, you know, it was just there was no details. It made it seem like this person was going on a trip, not even to Brazil. They had the statue of Rio de Janeiro and the waves and the beaches. We actually don't know what region they were going to study, presumably a forested region, not an urban area like Rio. Uh, and, you know, we didn't know the, the fact that this is actually going through the, the sort of rigorous uh, National Science Foundation grant processing. It went through in 2008. They approved of it, but just didn't have the money, yeah. you know, and so that all of those details were not included in the story. Yeah. So it was just, it was really obnoxious and it was really like, you know, whether it was done intentionally or whether it was done just sloppily. It's the kind of thing that has a big political significance because it plays off, um, you know, the fact that people really are touchy about how their money is spent. And so if they see this report and someone's like, oh, $450,000 of your hard-earned taxpayer money is going to just to pay for a beetle and a trip to Rio de Janeiro, like that, you know, that works people up and makes them angry. And, that you know, and this reporter was pestering Claire McCaskill about it. So, so whether they were doing it intentionally or not, it could it's easily can perceived as sort of a hit piece on Claire McCaskill and sort yeah. of implying that, you know, the stimulus was really wasteful uh, and that kind of thing. And I wanted to mention, too, like that story was one thing, but the, the really obnoxious story, in my opinion, was one that was covered by Fired Up Missouri, where um, they did like it was KMOV again, and they did the story claiming that... Um, all of this money for um, foods, they, they, they examined where food stamps were spent, like Missouri food stamps. And they like tried to make this big scandal that like, you know, several thousand dollars of Missouri food stamps were spent in California and several thousand dollars of Missouri food stamps were spent in Florida. And a hundred, I, I remember this number, $160 of Missouri food stamp money was spent in Hawaii, you know? And so like, and of course, they mix in all of these shots of um, like tropical beaches, you know, like the beautiful beach, and like they're they're making the story basically attacking like the most vulnerable uh, members of society, like people on food stamps, just implying that because money was spent in California and Florida, they're wasting taxpayer money, and the only access they had was access to statewide statistics of, of what was spent. So they don't have any specifics about knowing like w- what the money was spent on, whether they were there for a funeral, whether they're there for some other reason, whether someone maybe paid for them to go on a trip or whatever, you know, it was just like they had no data whatsoever. And yet they turned it into this really, you know, I thought kind of mean spirited attack implying that, you know, people on food stamps are just, you know, running around living these lives of luxury, you know, off the backs of taxpayers. So, so that one to me was, was even more obnoxious because I think UMSL can defend themselves and Washington university can defend themselves. And then, but this, 
this was just sort of a, an attack on people who use food stamps. Well, and just going off that, I mean, we spend a lot of, uh, you know, valuable resources um, ensuring that people have food safety and security. And so several hundred thousand dollars in the grand scheme of things, I mean, a lot of individuals will look at that and say, that's a lot of money. But from the perspective of a large-scale institution, it's a small amount of money that they're trying to, you know, that they, they might not even be aware of, and they might have just put those statistics out without knowing it. Mm-hmm. And the way that KMOV reported the stimulus was very much like this. I mean, their whole angle was the $800 billion stimulus was supposed to create jobs. And look at this one example that we found where it's not really doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that that whole angle was very disingenuous because it, it really what it seemed like they were doing is they were fitting a template. They already knew that, you know, people would be upset if they pointed out one incident where it would be difficult to explain for for Claire McCaskill why this would be relevant for creating jobs. But, you know, they didn't really have the details and they wanted to fill that template up. And in this particular case, they picked, I don't think they picked a very good example because, you know, I think that scientific research into uh, a beetle that can potentially damage a $4 billion industry is a worthy topic, especially if it's, you know, $400,000 uh, that will support, you know, four graduate students will support transportation costs, which has a stimulative effect on the economy because remember they have to fly out of Lambert airport. There's people who work there, their salaries in some way would be spread out through that money. So it has a multiplier effect, as they call call it in economics, where it actually, you know, helps the economy. And it seemed it seems like, you know, our news media ought to inform people. They're not they're not there to rile people up and to misinform people and give people the impression of something that doesn't exist. And this story, in my view, really misinformed people. It didn't have the details and you know I, we unfortunately because of the technical difficulties we can't play it but if you know the sort of the lead in this by the way this is their investigative journalist speech this is what they call investigative journalism right. sort of had this image of Claire McCaskill you know walking in slow motion you know <laughs> sort of darkly in the in in the calls of the capital and then they ran over to the cameras and ambushed her on this on this uh issue i thought she handled it well and you know it it doesn't it really seems like they were trying to fit this template to rile people up you know get Claire McCaskill on the defensive and how could you waste taxpayer dollars in your election year and so on and so forth and not really try to inform people yeah. hey this has been the effect of the stimulus i think that is a good investigative topic what has the stimulus done for missouri uh has it done good things has it done bad things but i don't think this story at all contributed to that no, yeah, and it wasn't I think the segment might be titled like "Is this why we're broke or something yeah. like yeah one I don't know one of the two k movie stories we talked about that's like they're a regular segment they run, and it's just um and then uh you know Fox Two News has something similar. I like Fox Two News a lot better, actually, I like Charles Jaco does some good real investigative reporting, but they also have this other segment called You Paid for It, where basically they sort of ambush people and say, "Oh, why are you spending this money and you know, sometimes that may be legit, but a lot of the times I think it's similar to what you're saying, where they basically just find some expenditure of money and like try to trump it up. And they know that viewers will get mad. You know, I think they do this because they know that 
they can get people riled up easily if they just say, oh, look, this, these people spent money and there's no justification for it when really they're just not explaining what, what the people's justification would actually be. Um, and so it's really kind of sad because this is what, you know, as Kevin has alluded to many times, this is what they conceive of as investigative reporting nowadays when you basically have these powerful uh, actors in the in the economy, you know, like Bank of America is out there uh, screwing over people who got loans. I mean, they're intentionally telling people, oh, you may be um, eligible for a loan modification. This has been reported quite a bit on Show Me Progress. They, they'll go and tell people you, you're eligible for a loan modification um, so you can start paying lowered um, lowered payments for a, a few months while we start this process, you know, or while as a trial period. And while they're doing that, because the people are paying lower payments, it it kicks the foreclosure process in in action. I mean, so it's basically just robbing people. You know, it's 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 complete scam. Um, and they're doing this kind of things. And there's all kinds of huge um, companies. You know, Wall Street. You know, obviously uh, made a lot of mistakes, and a lot of other companies are doing these horrible things. And yet, our TV media thinks investigative reporting is running around you know, complaining that stimulus money was spent on this scientific research rather than, you know, something else without even getting the facts. So it's just, it's really a shame that they, they've sort of twisted this, you know, I, this, this positive idea of investigative journalism into something that's so, so far from what it used to be. And I think maybe this is a good transition into Wisconsin, the national issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did you see John Stewart's piece, um, he's done a, a series oh, yeah. of them where he's done a really good job, I think, explaining sort of the, the dynamic yeah. and the way that the media has looked at it. I mean, right now, for those of you who have paid attention to the mass movement taking place in Wisconsin over stripping collective bargaining rights, a big argument is that and a good deal of the public employees that exist in Wisconsin are teachers. That's that's the bulk of the, the people who are under attack is, is teachers and their, and their unions that represent them. And one of the memes that's floating around is teachers are highly paid. There are people who get a lot of money. Look, $50,000, the average worker gets paid a lot less, which is a very manipulative statistic because your average teacher has things like college education, which only 24% of American adults have. Many teachers have master's degrees. Uh, many teachers work, um, you know, in, in industry, in work specializing in math and science, and so they have even more qualifications and can go into many other fields. They don't have to teach. And so in theory from economics, you want to pay them more. But there is sort of this meme out there that teachers get paid a lot of money. And one of the things John Stewart's segment pointed out was that these same people, the exact same people, were – uh, defending Wall Street and defending the fact that large banks like Bank of America gave tens of billions of dollars in bonuses with taxpayer money under the idea of, well, these people work hard and they deserve it and it's a difficult job, you know, and, you know, we, we as taxpayers should actually fund people. And in fact, you know, one of the other memes was that, well, you know, making $200,000 isn't very wealthy so that, you know, the people who are making two hundred thousand dollars should pay less in taxes and get these bonuses oh, yeah, during the Wall Street. The, yeah, where, where, 
there are, I guess there, that was Wall Street. That was also the extending Bush tax cut. And so it's a very surreal reversal, and it's be, sort of very bald faced. I mean, these people are, are being very bold and saying, on the one hand, if you're working in the financial industry, $200,000 isn't that much money. On the other hand, if you're educating children for the United States of America and trying to you know, provide what I think everyone acknowledges is universally a good thing, that's you're somehow being overcompensated by getting $50,000. In fact, there was one reporter on Fox News who said, oh, teachers, it's a part-time job. They get they leave at three o'clock and they don't have uh-huh. summers. And my mom was a teacher and she did this. I know this for a fact, you know, not, and she didn't work very hard. I mean, so that was sort of his evidence that teachers weren't very good. His mom could have been a, just been a terrible <laughs> teacher and not actually done yeah, her job. That's very what John well. Stewart said. Yeah, that was what John Stewart said, <laughs> you know, and, and so, you know, it just strikes me as odd that you had that, this dichotomy and it's our media institutions, you know, not just the television. I mean, CNN and the cable news outlets have generally done a very bad job, as Stuart has, has uh, pointed out. They just haven't been very serious at all. But even the New York Times, there was a report that was written by the son of the owner of the New York Times, Arthur Schultzberger. Oh, yeah. And it was featured by Governor Scott Walker, and it talked about how— In the prank call. It, yes, it was a prank call. Scott Walker, during the, that prank, that infamous prank call, said— I want everybody to read this New York Times story. Now, first of all, someone in the New York Times story basically said, um, even union mem- even people who work in unions think teachers get overcompensated and are bad and their rights should be stripped. That was the basic the impetus of the article. Well, someone investigated and it turned out that they're, all of the people who they profiled had no ties to union. They had somebody who worked for GM and they said, oh, yes, he used to work in a union. And even he doesn't think teachers should be compensated with $50,000. He thinks that's a lot of money. Well, then it turns out he didn't actually go into a union. And so this has just been very sloppy investigative reporting, and it really sets the mentality for a lot of people. There's a lot of people who mistrust institutions like unions and government, and this gives them an excuse, and they could say, oh, well, the New York Times says it so it's real, very respected, and I think it's important when you have these these institutions, and just and generally, to just get the truth right. And it seems like media bends over backwards to try to, you know, make sure that maybe a Wall Street banker gets fair treatment in the press, right. and then when it's a teacher or when it's maybe a graduate assistant at University of Missouri St. Louis, it's very sloppy journalism. Right. Right. Um, yeah. You. Uh... New York Times, that was pretty bad. And I saw also, um, there was, uh, when was it? There was, uh, so there was some story a couple weeks ago or a week ago or something where the New York Times like referred to something saying, even Democrats like Michelle Bachman or something, you know, even some Democratic bloggers like Michelle Bachman. And, and it turned out someone was able to track it down and it turned out it was like a random anonymous comment on a liberal blog that said, I'm a Democrat and I like Michelle Bachman. But of course, an anonymous comment could be any, it could be Jim Hoff, you know, saying that, you know, so. And so knowing just, them, I wouldn't put it past them. <laughs> right. So it was just terrible. I mean, and I don't, uh, you know, sorry to bring this up, Kevin, but. This is interesting, especially in light of our previous conversation about the Claire McCaskill when the New York Times, you know, attributed 
you know, some high up Washington That's official a good point. <laughs> said that Claire McCaskill uh, torpedoed the, the the St. Louis convention, DNC convention. It's they've they've had kind of a bad track record in the last yeah. That is a good week. That is a good know. point. That that uh, the New York, although I will. I did point out that Arthur Schultzberger's son wrote this piece, and he he is sort of a source for a lot of these problems, whereas uh-huh. some of the other uh, people, Jeff Seleny, who wrote that article, and that is a good point to make that the New York Times hasn't been uh, the the most you know reliable when it you know when somebody actually investigates and says, well, where was your source? Although Jeff Seleny is generally considered to be a much cleaner journalist than than. Uh, than Schultzberger's son, who, of course, got his job because his father uh, runs the New York Times. And it would involve not just stupidity, but blatant lying if he made up you know, some claim about a White House official, I suppose. Um, but maybe we should um, take, take a quick break, yeah. quick break um, and we will be right back and talk a little bit more about um, Wisconsin. Okay, we're back. This is uh, Student Activist Hub Radio, and I'm your host, Kevin, uh, with my co-host, Adam. Yeah, there, I, uh, I just wanted to mention there was a, I thought there was an interesting discussion. I had posted some stuff about how I felt like they were really demonizing teachers. Um, and there was an interesting discussion on my Facebook wall. And one of the points that I thought was just made really well um, by someone was that, you know, the, the problems with the education education system are just really complicated you know there's you know it's difficult you know there's underfunding and there's um you know there's variations in how committed parents are to you know emphasizing whether schools are important and it's just really easy i think i think a lot of this anger towards teachers is because it's so easy to just look for a scapegoat and they're the sort of easiest people to point at is to say oh yeah the teachers must be responsible for this you know they're the ones who are to blame for all of these education problems when they're lazy and they're not trying. Um, and it's just really a way of sort of brushing over all of this, you know, the fact that it really is a complicated problem. And I, I think, I just think the main thing holding back education reform is that everything about it is so politicized right now that, you know, you can't make any like common sense proposals without people completely freaking out about stuff, you know, for, for, for political political reasons and um and one thing that uh tying it back to missouri there's this proposal right now i don't really have the specifics in front of me but there's this proposal to sort of get rid of um teacher tenure in missouri in the public schools and then also kind of change the system to be competitive where it's like some small group of teachers would get paid quite a bit of money like above seventy thousand. like a lot more teachers would be paid more than 70,000 than they are now. But then like two thirds of the teachers would all be paid a lot less than they are now, like under 40,000 or under 30,000 or something like that. And so it's basically like setting up the system where all the teachers are competing for, you know, to be in this top slot where they get, where they get paid all this money. And I think it was also being discussed to like fire teachers who like finished, you know, in the bottom one third certain number of years in a row or something like that and and it's just it just seems really draconian to me i mean i I realize there are problems with the education system and that things need to be done but this system to me seemed like it was sort of already kind of set up where it's demonizing teachers and they also haven't gotten into any specifics about how they're actually going to evaluate how well you're doing and of course 
one thing that you know should be obvious, but with our legislature, you know, I wouldn't put it past them. They if it's not, is that it's a big difference if you're trying to teach in you know inner city uh, St. Louis uh, versus trying to teach in Clayton or Ladue. You're just going to have a different set of issues that you're dealing with, and it's going to be a lot easier in like Ladue to have students who perform well on like standardized tests and that kind of thing. So. So any sort of sloppy attempt of like evaluating teachers that doesn't take that kind of stuff into account seems to me like it's really going to discourage people from wanting to even be at the public schools because they're going to know they're already going to have a more difficult time and they're going to be sort of punished on top of that um, if their students don't um, don't perform as well. So, yeah, I don't know. Well, I agree with that. And one point that I want to make it's a little separate is that I'm very skeptical of sort of the, um, a lot of people have, you know, said unions are really the problem. They've sort of honed in on trying to, to sort of eliminate and harm teachers unions. Mm -hmm. This is going on in Wisconsin. Uh, you know, this is also going on in New York city. Uh, this is going on in Chicago, Illinois, other places around the country where there's a real and there's actually a national attempt, even from the Department of Education nationally, to just sort of eliminate teachers unions. Now, the argument is, is that teachers unions stymie progress and they have bad workplace rules and that leads to the poor education system. And, you know, that is an argument. I'm not an expert on it, but I actually think that you can evaluate that because there's states in the country that have no teachers unions hmm. like Mississippi, Arkansas, Alabama, <laughs> Georgia, Louisiana. Are they at the top of our nation's education system? No. In fact, they're at the bottom. And so to make the argument that teachers unions are bad and that's really the problem that's a quantifiable, that's an argument that you can make, you can look at, you can say there are states in the country that have no teachers unions, there are states in the country that do have teachers unions. How do they do? And if you look at it, the, the state that has the lowest, one of the lowest union densities is the state of Mississippi, and they're near rock bottom in terms of performance on test standardized test scores, right. students who drop out of college, graduate, every measure that you can look at. And so I actually think that, you know, to make that argument, you really have to have evidence on your side. Mm. And I just have not seen the evidence that the real problem is the fact that teachers organize to collectively bargain and, you know, try to make their work conditions better. In fact, most of the time, the unions Focus on issues that help students, like reducing classroom time, giving more time for uh, uh, teachers to prepare for curriculums, mm -hmm. having more budgets for their classrooms so that they can buy supplies. I think that it's not just the salary and compensation. It's also many other things that teachers unions work for to try to improve. Right, right. That's an excellent point uh, for sure. So, And uh, I don't have much to add, but, I mean, I think St. Louis, too, you see a lot of demonization of the teachers' unions here, um, and not only from Republicans. Like, you know, city, Democratic city officials are sort of happy to to attack um, some of the teachers' unions. And, uh, and they, I mean, Democratic officials in St. Louis are pushing really hard for charter schools, which, you know, may be, may be part of the solution. But I think as part of that, they also are happy to take shots at um, the public schools and, and the unions uh, in the schools. So. 
Um, yeah. So did you, I guess we've, we've talked about, well, we can talk a little bit more about Wisconsin in particular. Yeah. Um, and sort of how the dynamics are playing out. One of the things is that, you know, and I guess we're over the weekend, but there was a court order to open the Capitol building um, that the governor Right now, people are not allowed in the Capitol building, but someone sued and said, well, it's constitutional. We should be able to get into the Capitol building. So the judge said, yes, that's right. But apparently the governor is ignoring that that order. And he didn't let this was on Friday. He didn't let uh, basically they let like 100 people back into the Capitol and there are tens of thousands trying to get in outside the rally. There was an interesting speech by filmmaker Michael Moore, Mm -hmm. um, who you know, and this is one of those times where I'd love to have the audio, but he really, I think, did a good job of, he really did a good job of bringing the issue, of broadening sort of the issue at stake with sort of this attempt to, to dismantle uh, unions in the state of Wisconsin, public sector unions in the state of Wisconsin. He broadened it out and said, no, we're in a system where Wall Street, and by that, the major financial institutions that were bailed out with $800 billion of taxpayer funds are really calling the shots right now. And, mm-hmm. you know, the teachers, the unions, not just teachers, but the public sector unions are not really, you know, they're really on, on the defensive. And this is, you know, this is sort of a, an effort to sort of get, remove more of their power. And I think that um, the the small amount of power that they have, and and I think he did a really good job of of sort of um, tying it together. Of course, Fox News really <laughs> criticized him for that. Yeah. <laughs> so they said that he was calling for class warfare and socialism and all the usual sort of things that that are going on. But I think one of the things that Moore pointed out is that these attacks on working people aren't coming from like a amorphous you know, unknown, ineffable group of people. It's coming from a pretty clearly defined group of people, and those are people who have a lot of money, uh, like the Koch brothers who are funding these candidates. At the, of course, they're doing American, the American for Prosperity, but also other outside groups that are getting lots of big money from financial interests, from pharmaceutical companies. These are all very wealthy groups, and they're trying to eviscerate workers' rights. And it, it's not, I mean, if you want to say that there's a class war, you wouldn't criticize Michael Moore. There's no attempt on the part of teachers' unions to take away the rights of people to make lots of money on Wall Street. They didn't come out against the bailout and said, that's a bad thing. They didn't do anything to, to go after any of the gains that Wall Street has made. So I think mm. the class war is going in one direction and, you know, it's not, from you know rich to, it's not from poor to rich it's from rich to poor right right absolutely uh you know i was thinking michael moore sometimes should try um just reading like one of reagan's speeches and then seeing how fox news critic you know they'll find ways to attack it you know and then he you know sort of punk them you know what i mean that'd be kind of funny to see him just read a reagan speech and see how they declared that he was speaking socialist, socialist. rhetoric. Did something. you see the, speaking of Fox News again, did you see the, uh, they had like a, a split screen with Bill O'Reilly and there was saying unions are violent. You know, the working people are thugs and violent. 
in Wisconsin. And, of course, the split screen had people, who knows who, but they were claiming that it was from Wisconsin Uh who were being violent. Well, the problem was there were palm trees and it was sunny outside and it was identified as California. And Wisconsin was, you know, below zero and freezing and, Uh you know, the snow was on the ground. So, of course, the protest, in part of the protest, they brought plastic palm trees. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. People dressed up in palm trees. That was really funny. Fox News has just been ridiculous. I don't um, I don't think we talked about this last week. They have a reporter there who oh. this was pretty hilarious, too. So so we, uh, he was there reporting in the crowd. You know, it's a liberal crowd. It's Wisconsin, like one of the biggest college towns in the country. So they're chanting Fox News lies around this, you know, while this guy's trying to report. And a lot of times you can barely hear him. Um, but he, uh, there's a moment in his broadcast where there's sort of a sign that gets held up in front of him and he's like, Oh, that guy hit me. That guy hit me, you know? And then, so he was claiming that he was hit. Um, you said he was punched. Yeah. He said, well, I, I don't know. I think his first term was hit. Okay. And then later he got interviewed by Fox news about it. Yeah. And then he said, yeah, someone punched me in the arm, you know? And then, and the Fox news hosts were going on and on about, Oh, he was assaulted and he should press charges. And he's like, oh, no, no, I mean, I'm not going to do that. I'm too tough, you know, or whatever. And then anyways, it turns out that someone has a video um, from the crowd of what happened. And this video <laughs> shows basically there's a guy who holds a sign in front of him. He pushes the sign out of the way. And the guy like literally just taps his shoulder twice, you know, yeah. like with his finger. And you can see this guy might be standing like, four feet away from him. Like he had to outstretch his arm and tap him from behind. There was no, I mean, he couldn't, even if he'd had his hand, it was, it was his fingers basically that were sort of stretched out to their fullest extent. Even if he had his hand in like balled up at a fist and just, it was like a tap. He didn't even move, uh, you know? And so it, it was, it's fascinating. And now of course, if you type in, if you Google that, there's probably tens of thousands of links about how the, the Fox News reporter was assaulted and freedom of speech and blah, blah, blah. And it just this is just how these these little things grow. Oh, yeah, and they haven't retracted anything. I mean, so uh, Eric Bullard of uh, Media Matters for America, he uh, he wrote about the incident before this video even came out. And he just said that, you know, they uh, I can't remember what exactly he said. Oh, he was talking about how Fox. It was funny that Fox News was surprised that people thought he was biased, that or people thought thought Fox News was biased. And then Dana Lash and Jim Hoft um, wrote blog posts saying Eric Bullard thinks it's funny that a Fox News reporter was beaten. You know, like so they, they write these blog posts, you know, saying he's encouraging violence and all this stuff. It's funny how that it turns from us, you know. A single punch by somebody to like being beaten. Yeah. Like. <laughs> um, and uh, and so, uh, you know, they haven't like Kevin was saying. This is how they work. You know, they write these posts and they've never ish- wrote anything on their blog saying, "Oh wait, I guess he actually wasn't punched." You know, there's no retraction or anything. You know, they just move on to their next scandal. And there's no. You would think if they really cared about citizen journalism as much as they claim to. They would say, oh, wow, you know, citizen journalists caught this on video and it wasn't actually an assault. But of course, they didn't, they don't, you know, they won't even mention it. They'll never talk about it. If you were 
in their face with a camera, they probably wouldn't admit it, even if you showed the video to them, like right in front of them. It's just they they won't do it. So, anyways, but yeah, so that was another uh, interesting development from Wisconsin. And then the let's see, and then the sort of big thing was that, uh, or well, recall the recall, the recall has started up. Um, so the people are taking action, and I think that's great. There was there was a moment I think it was earlier in the week where. You know, it seemed like Democrats might be wavering. There were sort of rumors that they might be wavering, um, but they said that they would. They weren't gonna. You know, individual members would not come back on their own. They were agreed that if they ever went back, they'd come as a group. And now that I think this recall process has started, I think that's going to strengthen their resolve because there's sort of an end game in sight. You know, there's like if they get enough signatures, then there'll be an election, and if they get enough, you know. Uh, if they win back only three Senate seats. seats. Plus a Republican, Dale Schultz, came out and said, I'm not going to vote for this. Yeah. A big, big news of Wisconsin's Senate Republican came out and said, I'm not going to vote for this. And actually I read a report that said that four other Republicans were saying, oh, you know, we don't we don't really think this is a good idea. Yeah. Of course, in that, that uh, video within that prank call with Koch, one of the things Walker said was that there were people he's, quote, worried about. And so... It's not like, you know, that was something that the media didn't actually at all comment on. But I thought that was interesting that there were legislators who were wavering, you know, and he's sort of presenting this as we have a united front. And now it's pretty clear that it's cracking. Yeah, it's cracking. And I I would think it's going to crack more just because all of the poll numbers have been absolutely brutal to Walker, like people... His his um, unfavorable ratings and are way down. People like people trust the unions way more than they trust him. They think he should compromise. Um, you know, all of the poll numbers, even Rasmussen, which is the most biased, like of the mainstream polls, like they had a they did the worst in this last election, and they had a clear bias towards Republicans. Even their polls show that Walker is unpopular. And that people support the unions more than they support him. So he, it looks like he's really taking a beating in public opinion. And his latest stunt is to send out all these letters telling people that they're going to get fired and try to blame it on the Democrat. Oh, you know, because the Democrats won't come. I'm just going to have to start firing people, you know, kind of like a hostage situation or something. Um, but it seems unlikely that that's going to win him very many friends either if he starts, um, you know, firing random people well you know i think that it's he's a very cynical person you know it's it's very clear to me that he's sort of playing power politics and trying to get rid of unions i mean he said that in his story that he said that in that prank call which was fascinating i mean nobody really commented on i guess well here at st louis uh, student activist hub radio we commented on (laughs) that's right uh and the you know he he said that you know the this this sort of incident with with the protest reminds me of Ronald Reagan and when he fired the aircraft traffic controllers and then he went on to say and that was the beginning of the end of communism and I want to sort of be remembered as someone who does something in the same vein I don't know what maybe you know I I don't know what what how he feels that his greatness will be achieved but this is how he's thinking and it's a very delusional type of thinking in on, in my view. Uh, but this is the, the mindset of Scott Walker. So the average voter in Wisconsin 
if they're paying attention, it's pretty clear that he's not interested in helping the average person. He's, he's interested in his own sort of political ideological fantasy. And it doesn't matter. I think John Boehner put it well when he was asked about what the Republican proposals on the national level would do to, to the American. Someone said, if this will lose jobs, you know, uh, what's your reaction to that? This will lose two jobs, your proposal. And he said, so be it. And I think that Walker has the same mentality. If it hurts the state, so be it. I still get my political gains. I still benefit the conservative movement and so on and so forth. So be it. Yeah. Yeah. And you're seeing that um, other place too. Uh, the governor of Florida, right, is refusing billions of dollars and uh, money to to build a high-speed rail um, in the Tampa Bay region, which seems ridiculous to me. And then the money is just going to go somewhere some other else. state yeah and uh and then again in missouri uh i mean you saw a couple of state senators brian nieves and um oh why am i blanking on his name uh lemke jim lemke <laughs> mm-hmm. uh they were trying to refuse federal education money and now they're trying to refuse federal unemployment money yes i saw um, that then yeah. basically if it gets refused it just goes somewhere else and yet they're filibustering in the missouri senate um trying to like refuse this money and lemke said um that he thought unemployed people were just lazy and they need to get up off their butts and go get a job or maybe yeah. two well, to me, when I read that, I thought he didn't really understand what it meant to be unemployed. Unemployed right. means the federal government has a definition. It means somebody who doesn't have a job and who's looking for a job. Yeah. It's not somebody who's just sitting on the couch. You can't collect unemployment benefits if you don't if you don't have any proof that you're looking for a job. And there's a process that you go through, and it's it's a pretty serious process to ensure that you can get some benefits. Uh, you know, so. Yeah, and it's absurd for him to claim that in an economy with almost 10% unemployment that oh, anyone can just go out and grab a job. You know, like it's just laziness to not have a job. I mean, there's not very many jobs out there is the problem. So he was just um, pretty obnoxiously cold-hearted with some of those comments. And, and him and uh, Nieves are just grandstanding and trying to make, a, you know, trying to be like the Tea Party heroes by... Um, refusing this federal money, but I don't know. It's resulting in 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 real people um, getting getting hurt if if they're successful. Did you want to take a break uh, before we transition to the next uh, topic? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, let's just go ahead and take a short break then. We're back. This is Student uh, Activist Hub Radio, and I'm your host Kevin with my co-host Adam. Uh, and we wanted to transition to our next topic, which is the, uh, wanted to talk about the Census Bureau numbers and the redistricting efforts that are going on. Uh, You know, for our listeners out there, Missouri, unfortunately, uh, had a pretty slow uh, population growth this year, and so uh, the Census Bureau uh, came out and said that the state lost one congressional seat of the nine that it has, so we'll have to go down to, to eight uh, and within those eight, they'll have to be divvied up with about 100,000 more residents than they previously had. Uh, and there's now a process to decide uh, how to divvy those districts up. And one of the uh, things that's come out, the St. Louis Beacon, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, uh, have both covered these articles. 
they've talked about the fact that the city of St. Louis actually saw a drop of population by about 8%, about 29,000 residents moved out of the city of St. Louis, uh, or I guess 29,000 less residents than in the city of St. Louis um, uh, over the past 10 years. And the interest, there's a cu- couple of interesting things about that. The first part is that Republicans in the state legislature have said, oh, well, this means that uh, we should cut the representation that St. Louis has, but just the entire St. Louis region. The St. Louis region has actually grown overall. Suburbs of St. Louis have grown. Uh, not St. Louis County, it's actually seen a, a drop, but St. Charles, Jefferson County uh, have, all, have posted a pretty big growth numbers, uh, uh, and they, that has been uh, good. And in fact, Todd Aiken's district has actually been one of the, the fastest growing congressional districts in the country and in uh, the state of Missouri, and that's in the St. Louis region. He represents sort of the St. Charles and, and uh, part of West County in Missouri in uh, the St. Louis region. Uh, now, the interesting thing about this is that, you know, the mayor's people and Jerry Rainford, his chief of staff, had a very odd spin on it. There's like a lot of people coming out with soul searching and saying, oh, St. Louis lost 8% of its population. This means the back to the downtown, heavily, you know, subsidized type of growth that the Slay administration has been promoting. It was a failure. Now, the Slay people responded and said, Oh, well, if you actually look at the statistics, 22,000 of the 29,000 people who left the city were under 18. So this is good news because that means we have to spend less money on schools. Mm. Uh, And I thought that that was a fascinating spin that they they came out with. And they were saying that, well, if you look, St. Louis is really becoming a more educated, more progressive, not progressive, but just more sort of creative city with lots of young professionals without – kids who are moving into the city and it's losing residents who are not that presumably that's a bad thing and you know we should try to address that but um, mayor slay basically said no the other part of the equation and one thing that i want to note because i know a lot of people in st louis who are upset with this the fact that the population declined but i don't think that St. Louis is an anomaly in this. I think many major cities in the Midwest and the Northeast have lost a lot, lost population. Uh, and St. Louis is an anomaly. It's a part of an economic trend. And, you know, if you look at your major cities, the majority of the population in many of them, uh, such as St. Louis, is African-American. And according to the Census Bureau, uh, there has been a general trend for African-Americans to move to the South and away from uh, northern cities. And so I don't think that St. Louis should look at this and say, oh, you know, we as a city have have failed and, you know, had sort of mope and and have, you know, hang your head. I actually think it's a part of a trend, and it's difficult to fight certain trends. You know, you just have to sort of deal with the cards that have been played and try to make St. Louis uh, a a more livable, uh, sort of, you know, affordable city with, with the best infrastructure, that it can be, um, you know, I, I, Chicago, uh, Illinois, uh, which St. Louis oftentimes sort of looks to as the city to emulate actually lost 200,000 residents, uh, 10 times more than the city of St. Louis in the past census for much of the same reason. Uh, you know, most of the residents who left same thing with this, the, about 80% of the residents who left were African-Americans and moved down, down South, (coughs) excuse me, 
moved down south. And, uh, you know, that I think is uh, something that uh, it's difficult for St. Louis to, to adjust to. It's very hard for the mayor to control those types of trends. Yeah, I, I think the part where he did get in trouble, uh, the mayor and uh, his advisors, is that they um, they had been saying for the last few years that oh, well, our numbers are going to go up. But we, you know, we we have these unofficial counts and we're we're doing great, and it's going to go up this time. So I think that really kind of hurts them um, politically. Is the fact that they were really spinning it so much before the numbers came out and sort of raising people's expectations that it would go up. And then, you know, it turned out that they were, that they were wrong. So, so I think there is that sort of negative. Um, it's also kind of interesting. The St. Louis American wrote a little bit about the numbers and they talked about how the city very much sort of emphasizes, you know, they kind of pick and choose a couple of districts and focus all of their attention on like, you know, like the downtown core, uh, like the business districts in the downtown and like where the, you know, maybe the North Grand area. Um, but a lot of the places where you really saw a lot of population leaving was sort of the northern um, precincts um, in the St. Louis City area. And those areas were kind of basically ignored by the city. So, so if your goal, I think the St. Louis American was kind of, saying, you know, if your goal is to retain population, you can't just focus on a couple areas and pretend the rest of the city uh, doesn't doesn't exist. So, Yeah, you know, I think that it, I, I think that's a great point um, and that there's a real emphasis across the country on building up the downtown. One of the things I wanted to note about this was Dallas, Texas, the booming city, mm-hmm. actually grew by a very small margin uh, this year and everyone was shocked. It was sort of you know, the mayor in the city um, who has sort of the same emphasis on building up the downtown and the urban core at the, you know, at the expense really of quality of life in the rest, rest of the parts of the city has been out there saying, yes, booming growth. And the city didn't really post booming growth. Many residents left the city. And I think that mm-hmm. it caused them to question whether or not this emphasis on building up the downtown is a great strategy, uh, especially if you constant. And when we talk about this, uh, there was a, I listened to a podcast on the nation magazine with Chris Hayes, and he was talking about the way that the tax code is set up to benefit large companies. And the interesting part is that this bled into how cities develop because he, he laid out a process where businesses actually come into municipalities and tell that municipality, we want to build our headquarters here. So what you're going to do, and they literally say this, what you're going to do is you're going to use your eminent domain powers to take this space that we want, get rid of the residents that live there. You're going to then build the the building with bonds and taxpayer dollars. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to you're going to own that building. And we'll we'll lease the building from you, but the tax you'll give us a tax credit. This is starting to get complicated, but you'll give us a tax credit so that we don't actually pay any money to lease that building because right. of the tax credit. Yeah. And then after a period of time, maybe five or ten years, you sell that building to us for a dollar. And this is how cities have developed. When when it when the you know you read in the Post Dispatch that you know a ballpark village or 
you know, a big company from Clayton is going to move downtown and the city of St. Louis is giving them, um, you know, $200 million in benefits, $200 million in subsidies. This is what that means. This is the process of subsidies that they go through. And this really means that they, that they as companies don't have to pay any money and it squeezes out small business. If you go down to St. Downtown St. Louis, there's not a lot of small sort of boutique stores like, you know, Michigan Avenue in Chicago or, you know, New York's downtown. There's not a lot of, you know, little small businesses. There's a lot of, you know, they're trying to bring in development, but there's a lot of sort of companies and, you know, your businessmen. Uh, and then there's a lot of nightclubs that are down there that, that have sort of sprouted up. Uh, and of course, a lot of lofts have been built recently and the nightclubs mm-hmm. sort of serve that young population. But there's not a lot of sort of the types of things that you that you need in order to have a downtown that's generating revenue, like stores and shops and things that that draw people into the downtown and and sort of take advantage of the resources that St. Louis has. And I think a part of that is this emphasis on big development and bringing in big corporate tenants as at the expense of sort of making the downtown more. You know, and this is my anecdotal. I haven't looked at any data. I'm just anecdotally when I go downtown in comparison to other major cities, it's not, you know, as, um, you know, many small sort of boutique stores that you would go into and shop and so on and so forth. Uh, but the, you know, and, and so I really, to me, it calls into question that style of development that, mm. you know, you're not really seeing. St. Louis take advantage of its resources and people come down to when they come to visit the city, they'll come down to the arch. They might go catch a card game and yet there's not too many. Okay. So outside of that, they could be, you know, walking, you know, around the city and maybe see a store and go in and buy something. But if there's not that infrastructure there for them to do that, then they're not able to do it. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I am not an expert in, you know, how you go about this at all. But, I mean, I do, there's definitely always this emphasis on big things. And even if it's not just big corporations or companies, uh, I think the Paul McKee development in Northside is another example where it's sort of like, here, we're going to build this whole, we're not just going to, like, do neighborhood piece by piece. We're going to do this giant project that... um, that uh you know transforms two whole city wards at once you know so so it's interesting i mean i don't know if it'll be successful or not but it's interesting that you know there's always this sort of emphasis i think it's just kind of human nature where you want to find this like magic bullet that oh if you just get this one big thing everything's going to change right away rather than having to like deal with the reality of like it's really like all these small little things that need to happen a lot of times that that really make a bigger difference and, and are needed for, for a sort of sustained uh, growth. But yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert either. So, you know, I have, I just, that's an observation that I take into account, like the Paul McGee, absolutely that, you know, and it, and I think that's pertinent when you said human nature, because I think that there's a lot of people in the Slay administration that the Slay people who sort of, you know, just if we just get this one thing, be it the Democratic Convention or, you know, yeah. other cities, the Olympics, Things we'll just get change. this one thing and it'll just 
change everything. And I don't necessarily think that's true. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not an expert, but I think that it's the day-to-day quality of life. If it, The one thing that I will say that, that I do support is more initiative for mass transit. Yeah. And it's interesting because I never, I always said, oh, yeah, build a, you know, Metrolink line. How could that be controversial? You know, how could people be opposed to that? Because it's, you know, you're, you're building more transportation options. But the interesting part is that there's a lot of sort of libertarian type of people who've come out and said, no, we should. Of course, you mentioned Rick Scott in Florida who uh, declined fundings for a high-speed rail program. And uh, he did that for a very ideological reason. He didn't do it because he looked at the data and said, oh, this is, this is a bad program. People wouldn't use it. He did that because he just doesn't believe in that sort of system, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for organization. And I think that that's a very, very, you know, you know, I think that there's a lot of people in the St. Louis region, uh, you know, not necessarily the mayor, but policymakers who sort of think that, you know, we shouldn't focus on mass transit. We should sort of focus. This is Kevin from Student Activist Hub Radio. Due to technical difficulties, the last few minutes of this segment have been cut off. However, Please join Adam and I for an interview with Brian K. Massey, the victim of a November 2010 incident of police brutality, where Massey gives us exclusive details on the progress of his case. Remember, you can subscribe to our podcast by searching for Activist Hub Radio in the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.